Well, we'll continue forward together in the book of Luke today. Uh, please stand as we read God's Word. The title of today's sermon is Understanding and Responding to Persecution. This is part two in this section. Uh, the subtitle being Together with One Accord. I'll read from verse 13 through to verse 37 of chapter 4 of the book of Acts. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So this primitive early church is facing its first persecution. The gospel of the kingdom has gone forth in the midst of this great healing, this man who had been born lame and had been laid there at the temple. Everybody knew him in Jerusalem. And Peter and John were on their way into the temple and they, by God's power, in the name of Jesus Christ, healed this man. And this brought... Great excitement to all the people, and uh, a lot of interest was brought in the name of Jesus Christ and the message of the kingdom of God. And by this time, the rulers were able to mount their opposition. 
they had a plan and they mounted it quickly, you'll recall. They arrested Peter and John, kept them in prison overnight, and the next morning brought them in in front of the Sanhedrin. And they couldn't punish them like they wanted to because the people were glorifying God because of this great miracle. Now recall, this is the same group of people who had been responsible for the murder of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the apostles in their preaching moments reminded them of this, and they brought their sin before their eyes. They did threaten them, and these were severe threatenings. And so the persecution has begun. And so the theme before our eyes as the people of God is persecution. And I want to review from the last sermon a few things about persecution. Because this is something that is very applicable to our day as well. While we may not be experiencing such direct commandments that clearly would be calling us to disobey the Lord Jesus Christ with severe, overt, severe threatenings, there's certainly a very covert, widespread covert persecution underway today in America to silence us, to make us afraid to stand up and identify with the Lord Jesus Christ, to make us afraid to speak of sin, to make us afraid to speak of the need for a Savior who died and was raised from the dead, and who is now king, and who commands us to obey him in every aspect of life, and which will bring us into conflict with the lies and the deceptions and the lawlessness which are rampant in our land. So this is very applicable to us today. We want to learn. We want to learn the principles so we can learn what is persecution and how to think about it. So why does persecution occur? When God's people love Him and by His Spirit and His Word obey Him in real life, then persecution is likely to occur. This is when you have a group of people who are not just hearers of the Word, but they are doers of the Word. Their life exemplifies the kingdom of God, and that will be directly contrasted with the lawlessness of the kingdom of darkness if that society is walking in darkness. The people who experience persecution will be following God with one accord. They won't be distracted or poisoned by the allurements of the flesh and of the world. Together they will be focused upon Christ and his kingdom. They become a real threat. When when this happens, they become a real obvious threat to the current world order. They are the conduits by by which the kingdom of heaven is coming to the earth. So the rebels, those who hate God, they hate this real-world demonstration of Christ and his kingdom. See, as long as the people of God keep Jesus inside these walls, inside the walls of their homes, the rebels will not persecute them because they've already achieved what they want. Nice little tame Jesus in our little hearts, in our little churches, in our little living rooms. They don't want the real Jesus Christ and who he really is on display through the power of a people who love him and walk in beautiful obedience to him. We should expect to be persecuted because the rebels hate Jesus and they hate those who look like him. And so this is a very clear contrast between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And that's what we should expect and that's what we should hope for. We don't want to embrace ways that cause us to blend in and look like the world. This is not what we are called to. We are called to be separate and to look like we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. When we do this, we should expect persecution if we live in the midst of a world that hates God. How do we understand persecution when we see it happening, when we feel it being pressed upon us? There's some things we need to remember, and this is a part of understanding persecution. It's also a part of how we'll pray as well. We need to remember that God is the almighty creator. He is sovereign over all things. This needs to be in our mind, and that Christ has been raised up from the dead and set by the Father as king over all the nations, over all the peoples, and over all the lands, over the entire cosmos, over every star and every moon and every sun. We need to remember that all rebellion against Jesus is ridiculous and it will fail. 
the powers that be want to look omnipotent. They want to look omniscient. They want to look as if they're all present. They are not. Jesus alone is God and King. And it's, it's utter futility to resist Him. These are the things that we need to have in our mind to understand persecution and keep it in its right context, to see it properly. We need to remember that Christ's sure victory is underway, and even this persecution is a part of how he is achieving that. We do not focus upon the threats or those who bring them. We gather together, we look at the threats together, and we put them up before God, and we forget about them. And we ask God to consider the threats. That's what they did when they prayed. Persecution should be expected in a society that hates God. And it should be an encouraging sign that we are obeying God in some kind of demonstrable fashion. Persecution is a blessing. Jesus tells us that. And we should rejoice when we're persecuted, he tells us. It is a result of loving God and loving others. Because loving God and loving others has a certain public transformational expression. So, if you've been persecuted, if you felt the pressure of persecution, it should be encouraging to you that that shows that there's some sort of urge on your part to live for Christ everywhere you go. In addition, persecution is a sign that enough Christian unity and corporate faithfulness exists to represent a threat to the diabolical rebels who are in the places of power. And this isn't just a word regarding our local assembly or any particular local assembly, it is, it's really a word about what does the church of the Lord Jesus Christ look like in that region, in that area, uh, so that denominational boundaries are not these dividing walls that keep Christians from being together and expressing the kingdom of Christ publicly. So whenever persecution is really mounted, it is a sign that there is a growing Christian unity being expressed publicly. Generally, persecution is not going to just be against a few isolated individuals here and there. It's when Christianity becomes a movement that the rebels implement persecution. We see this principle in that the Sanhedrin waited to move against the apostles until after there had been some sort of public success in their movement. See, the forces of darkness know that persecution always backfires. They know that it always grows God's church. They know that it always is used of God to strengthen his people. And so even though it's a last-ditch effort, it's actually a futile effort and it makes things worse for them. They would prefer for Christians to remain dulled in other ways, for Christians to remain silent in their homes and in their churches through other means that last longer and that don't tend to stir up the church unto faithfulness and service. We should not be so foolish as to think persecution cannot occur in our nation. It is occurring, I would argue, but we, and this is more of a covert type of persecution but we should not be so foolish as to think that we may not come to an overt persecution in our nation. We should be encouraged when we consider persecution that it cannot overcome God's Holy Spirit in us. Persecution cannot overcome God's Spirit in us. 2 Timothy 1.7 God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So... <clears throat> If you become terrified by the threats of this world, so before you go to heaven, before you put off this physical body and move into your eternal life in a perfect body, in a perfect place, if between now and then you find yourself terrified and you want to run away, God will strengthen you. And you have God's promise that he will keep you from running away and that he will be with you during that time. This is important for us to understand this as we think about it. Now, persecution is foreordained. It's one of God's tools in his box to increase the righteousness of his people and to frustrate his enemies. 
It's a part of how Christ shows His glory. You see, His enemies, they killed Him on a cross. And that's the greatest thing that has ever happened for us. Our sins are washed away because of what happened on that cross. And it's the grand picture of what happens every time Christians are persecuted. We are drawn closer to Christ. So these very things meant to harm us, they grow us closer to Him. The things meant to divide us from Him, those who are really His, it draws us closer to Him. Those things which are meant to advance the kingdom of darkness, Christ actually frustrates them and uses to advance His very kingdom. So in some regards, we can think of persecution as the last-ditch panicking of the enemies of God as God's kingdom is marching forth in a particular area. And, and I didn't put it here in the notes because it wasn't really an obvious part of what we looked at. It's there, but I didn't emphasize it. As a society becomes a Christian society where the people are loving and serving God, you know the mathematics of persecution in that situation, it begins to fall off. It decreases because those in power love to have Christian citizens if they are Christians because it is good and it is helpful and it builds up a society unto prosperity, unto strength, unto stability. So in that kind of a culture, persecution begins to wane. So you can think of persecution as a spike that occurs during a process where God is bringing the victory of His kingdom over a culture that hates God. How long will that spike last? How long will it plateau? How long? All that is in God's hand. And this, of course, is assuming that God is bringing the victory of His kingdom to every culture on earth over time. How do we respond to persecution? Well, we'll look at that more in detail today, but I'll go through the list of the things that we see. Let's be persecuted together. That's the first response. Let's be persecuted together. Let's be of one accord, agreeing together on the gospel of the kingdom and the mission that Christ has given to us. So when we come together and we discuss the threats that we're facing, the things that pressure us to be silent, we also need to do that in the context of the understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he has commanded us to be, to be doing with our lives. And this clarifies, this clarifies and helps us to be of one mind and that our prayers will have that momentum of community and of unity. We need to define the threats aloud together. We'll look at that more today. They did that. We should do that as well. And then there's prayer. Pray to God together corporately about the things that threaten to silence us. Remembering that God is our almighty creator, that Christ is the king, and that it is totally futile to come against him. Acknowledging our weakness and that we will be cowards and run away without his help and cry out to him for boldness in these prayers and ask him to go on doing miracles and other signs and wonders to stretch out his hand. Is his hand shortened in the year 2022 compared to A.D. 30? Or is he the same Jesus with the same arm of strength? The same Jesus that reached out and healed that 40-year-old man there at the temple. Might he still reach out today and bring healings today? And bring signs and wonders today? Yes. And so we want to also be praying for God to demonstrate. You see, it's particularly in the context of persecution that such prayers are so meaningful to Christ our King. Because these individuals have set themselves up against Him. And they've, they've magnified their own power over us. And they've brought that power against us like the Sanhedrin does to Peter and John. And they've basically said, we are God. We have the power to stretch forth our hand and to unheal you, if you will. To damage you. To harm you, your family, your health, your well-being. And so in that setting, we can cry out, not only for boldness so we don't give in, but we can cry out to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, show them who the real king is, we pray. In time, in history, stretch forth your hand and show forth mighty signs and wonders in the earth that demonstrate who you are right now as the king. These are things that are often not, this particular aspect is something that is, can be kind of skipped over in the reformed world. 
But we'll look at that as we get to it. We need to ask God to conquer his enemies when we pray. And we need to pray with expectation that we are going to see these things with our own eyes like they did. So today, we're going to look at uh, this, the first section of 23 and 20, verses 23 and 24. Together with one accord is what we're going to focus on today. So Peter and John went to their own. We'll talk about that. Peter and John reported all things. We'll talk about that. And they all listened to Peter and John. That's important to note. And they were with one accord. So diving into the text. Being let go, they went to their own companions. So Peter and John have been commanded by the Sanhedrin to stop spreading the gospel or to face very severe punishments. Their first response is what? They go back to their own people, to the true church of that time, the believers at that time in Jerusalem. We don't know if they went back to the whole group or just some of the group. It's hard to know for sure. But we do see this for sure. Peter and John do not lay aside their calling and go home to Galilee. They go to their own They do not go off alone to private prayer first. They go to their own. They didn't have prideful self-exaltation because of their bold and eloquent stance before the Sanhedrin. They go to their own. Let's look at this idea of to their own. Did you know that that word companion there says to their own companions? That word companions is not in the Greek text. It's an added word meant to bring clarification. But perhaps the addition of the word companions actually subtracts from the meaning. To their own, left as it is, points beyond companionship and into eternity. This mutuality arises from being one body in Christ. We, brothers and sisters, what we see here is they believed that they belonged to one another. We belong to one another because we each belong to Christ. Because Christ has made us one with him, we belong to one another. We emphasize this whenever folks join the church. We talk about this one another, this mutuality, this belonging to one another. We are members of our Heavenly Father's eternal family. They understood this. They went to Christ by going to His body. If Christ had not been resurrected and had still been walking the earth at that time, they would have gone right to Him, wouldn't they? They went to His body instead because being with His body is as close to being with Christ as you can be. They went to their father by drawing near to his family. Divine friendship drew them to their own. This is very important for us to note in our world today. This is not how most people respond to threatenings today. Even in the church. It's often going to start out with maybe an arm of the flesh response. Maybe it's going to start out with trying to handle it on your own somehow, instead of going to the people of God. Commentary says, after the release, Peter and John go to their friends, a phrase which is usually interpreted in terms of the community of believers in Jerusalem. And you can see there that literally it means to their own. Even to their friends is actually an interpreter's work. The nominalized adjective here denotes persons associated with a larger entity and documents the familial relationship of the believers So the idea there is it was a larger group of believers they were together with. And this expression to their own is not accidental as it presses the point of how the early church saw itself as a community of mutually supportive friends. And, of course, we believe this about our local assembly as we should. Every local assembly should believe this about themselves. But it's not just limited. This is also the Christians in your neighborhood the Christians that you know at other churches, other denominations, that God would hopefully bring us together with to be able to live this out in our area. Note that they did not give way to pride and separate themselves from their own. They really had an exalted experience there before the Sanhedrin. One of the commentaries says, though God had highly honored them, 
and calling them out to be his witnesses and enabling them to acquit themselves so well, yet they were not puffed up with the honor done them, nor thought themselves thereby exalted above their brethren, but went to their own company. No advancement in gifts or usefulness should make us think ourselves above either the duties or the privileges of the communion of saints. You see, Peter and John could have been tricked, and they could have thought, ha, check that out. They didn't do anything to us. We're good to go, and just moved on. That's not what they did. They considered their threats. They knew the only reason there had been any success in that moment was because of God's presence, and they knew that was true for every day to come as well. Note that they did not first go off alone to private prayer either, and this is something worth, worth emphasizing. Now, I'll grant that it's possible that they did that, okay? But the text certainly doesn't emphasize that. What is emphasized is the need for immediate connection with their, with their believing companions, that they needed to be with the people of God to deal with this. Though their enemies had severely threatened them, endeavored to break their knot, and frightened them from the work they were jointly engaged in, yet they went to their own company and feared not the wrath of their rulers, They might have had comfort if being let go they had retired to their closets and spent some time in devotion there. But they were men in a public station and must seek not so much their own personal satisfaction as the public good. Christ's followers do best in company provided it be in their own company. And so as Christians, we are eternal siblings. We are brothers and sisters together in the family of God And it is in this context that we are transformed, that we grow up in Christ, and that we minister together, and that we deal with all the threats against us as his people. And this is what we see happening here is the fruit of this understanding, the fruit of the awareness that we are immortal beings and that our final family is our divine family. He didn't run back to Galilee. He didn't run back to his own family. He went to the family. They went, Peter and John, to the family of God. So, where does your heart cry out when you are afraid? Do you keep it to yourself? Do you talk to anybody about the things that cause fear in your life? Especially the fear that you can feel prompts you not to follow God. Do you talk to anyone about this? You know what they did? They talked about it together. The the threats that were in society that were pushing them to be silent, they talked about it together. Where do your feet run when you are fearful? Where do you go? Where did Peter and John go? They went back to their own. Does your love and trust toward God your Father take you to His beloved children? Does your love and trust toward Christ take you to His body, to His church? All the goodness of a Christian family that builds peace and and confidence and joy and a healthy environment for growth in Christ-likeness in the family, all of those things are meant to point us to the final family that we are a part of. And in that day, all family distinctions will dissolve away forever. And we will all just say, God is my father. Jesus is my elder brother. And you are my sister. You are my brother forever and ever. And this is by no means meant to minimize the importance of the, of the Christian family in our world today. We see that its purpose is to prepare us for being a part of God's eternal family. Could someone watch your life and describe your relationship with God's church as, quote, to their own? That people would watch you live and they would say, you know what, that person believes that they belong to these other people. That person believes that these other people belong to them. Is there a mutuality that leads to a prioritization on this kind of level with the people of God in your life? And and again, I want to emphasize, I'm not just talking about relationships here at Foothills, but I'm talking about your general awareness of the call 
to be in this kind of connection with the people of God around you. Of course, you know, your first commitment is to your own family and to your local assembly, but that is never meant to be to the exclusion or ignoring other Christians in our area. Calvin says, Thus must the children of God do. One must prick forward another, and they must join hand in hand that they may vanquish the common adversary fighting under Christ's banner. So they went to their own. It should cause us to ponder our attitude and our thoughts towards the church of God, especially during times of difficulties. Next, they reported all. So Peter and John, when they came back to the church, they reported all. The text says, they reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. So Peter and John, they tell their brothers and sisters every command and every threat of the Sanhedrin. They don't withhold any of the terrible threats. They are all sharing these persecution threats together. It seems like Peter and John may have been tempted to not necessarily share all the details. They, they, like, they don't want to scare everybody. They could just maybe bear it their own, on, on their own. They're the leaders. We can bear this ourselves. We don't, we don't need to share this. Wrong. They came back and they shared all the threats. And when we looked at it, these are severe threats, the details of which would have clearly involved financial threats, reputational threats, uh, getting a job threats, everything about their livelihood and even their lives would have been threatened by the nature of what they were commanded not to do and the threats that went with it. So I'm going to read the text to us from starting at verse 5. Going through to verse 22, uh, we didn't read all of this at the very beginning. We started at thir verse 13 today. So listen to verse 5 through verse 22 and pay attention closely to the threats. But you'll see the context as well. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? It's a very intimidating setting. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any, in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the camp council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. So... The Sanhedrin bring them in in this very threatening environment. And they said, basically, who do you think you are? By what authority do you think you are acting to walk into our temple and do such a thing? And recall, as I said already, this is the same ruling body that had crucified, basically that had led to Jesus being crucified. It's a very, it's, it doesn't get any more threatening than this to your physical well-being. But they were restrained at this time because all the people knew a mighty miracle had been done. And you can see why this would play into their future prayers. How God's mighty hand stretched forth restrained the powers at that time. 
They severely threatened them. From now on they speak to no man in this name and they commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Peter and John reply. They're going to continue with their preaching and they further threatened them. So when they share this with the people, you can see it wouldn't have been a, a well, a maybe, a kind of, no, no. We will be severely mistreated if we continue to speak in Jesus' name, if we continue to present the gospel. And Matthew Poole says about this word, severe threatenings, the word here used implies a very sore and heavy threatening as of the most grievous punishment upon the most heinous fact. So it was very clear. It wasn't a maybe, it was a definite. Now I think it's very important for us to remember here what was the command of Christ to his disciples. Because if the threats are so clear that they will experience these things, they better have a clear commandment. They better know for sure what they're supposed to be. Well, did he really say that we have to actually tell people about it? Can we just kind of maybe make up a metaphor? To, no. This is what Jesus said to them in Luke 24, verses 44 through 49. He gave them their marching orders. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So he's the Messiah. He tells them he is the Messiah. Jesus is. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So it is very clear they were to preach Jesus in His name, Jesus, as the crucified, resurrected Messiah. And they were to preach repentance and the remission of sins in Jesus' name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. The Deliverer has come. It is no longer necessary for you to be enslaved in your sin. He has come back from the dead. You can be delivered from death and brought into eternal life if you trust in this Christ, this Messiah, this Jesus. And they were to preach in His name this deliverance from sin, death, and hell. They were to serve as witnesses of Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. We were there. We know it happened. We are witnesses of these things. And they were supposed to go and be the witnesses and also preach the message. Today, we're preaching the message, but we didn't actually witness it, did we? We have the written testimony in God's Word of those who were the eyewitnesses. And they were to wait in Jerusalem for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which has already happened. So they have very clear command. This is what the one accord is all about. It wasn't a complicated one accord that they experienced. They knew who Jesus was. They knew what he had done. And they were going to follow his commandments. So the most powerful ruling body in Jerusalem, the same court that had murdered Jesus via the Romans, was now commanding the disciples to disobey the command of Jesus. This was a, a death sentence that had been placed on them. And they had to have known that based on what had happened to Jesus. Under the most severe threats of punishment, the disciples of Christ were commanded to no longer speak or teach anyone at all, ever, in Jesus' name. That's what they were facing. Now, <clears throat> I can see a lot of ways to try to wiggle free from you know, he did say to start in Jerusalem and then go to all nations. Maybe this is time to leave Jerusalem. And we'll just go and we'll preach somewhere else and get away from the Sanhedrin. In other words, they could have started looking for ways around the simple commandment to preach the gospel. They could have started rationalizing disobedience. That is not what they did. Commentary says, Matthew Henry, they reported all that the chief priests and elders had, had said to them, adding no doubt what they were enabled by the grace of God to reply to them and how their trial issued. They related it to them that they might know what to expect both from men and from God in the progress of their work. 
From men, they might expect everything that was terrifying, but from God, everything that was encouraging. Men would do their utmost to run them down, but God would take effectual care to bear them up. Thus the brethren and the Lord would wax confident through their bonds and their experiences that they might now join with them in prayers and praises. And by such a concert as this, God would be the more glorified and the church the more edified. We should therefore communicate to our brethren the providences of God that relate to us and our experience of his presence with us, that they may assist in our acknowledgement of God therein. So Matthew Henry provides helpful application point there for us to consider. I think it would have been very tempting for those church leaders to have not shared all the details, not brought the whole church together into the reality. But they didn't. They shared it all together. So a question is, what worldly pressures squeeze you to be silent about Jesus? So when you're not at home, when you're not here, or even here, are there pressures even here at church or even in your family that squeeze you not to speak up about Christ? But particularly out in the culture, whether it's in your workplace or with clients, the grocery store, at the orthodontist's office, wherever you might be, what are the things that squeeze you to be silent about Jesus? And it's good for us to talk about these things, to learn from one another and to encourage one another and to pray together. Do you share with your brothers and sisters in Christ about these things that pressure you to be silent? It's very true, so true, undeniably true, that if you speak of Christ in today's world, you could get fired from your job. Absolutely lose your job. If you speak up about your love for Christ, you might not get promoted. You might not make it up any higher. You might not get new clients. So, there's pressure. There's this secularizing pressure that is screaming at the church, be silent, keep Jesus at home. I'm sure there are other things that we could, other places that we could think about, but the biggest one is in the workplace, to threaten your pocketbook, to threaten what your bank account looks like. How do you deal with this? How do you deal with this very real threat in your life to you and your family and the food that's on your table? How do you deal with this? Are you honoring Christ? Are you living for Him and being faithful to Him? And I'm not talking about being obnoxious. I'm talking about being yourself and speaking of His goodness and His glory as He gives you opportunity. This is very hard. When they shared with the church at the time, what did the church do? It says, when they heard that. So the church listened to them. The church listened. The report from Peter and John was eagerly received by all the Christians. They listened carefully and they joined with Peter and John as one. The threats are not just for Peter and John. Think about it. They could have done this, but they don't. They don't put Peter and John out and separate themselves from Peter and John. Eh, Peter and John are kind of out of control. Uh, We'll we'll kind of take care of this. Peter and John, you guys go over there. You keep preaching in Jesus' name if you want to. We're going to figure out a more pragmatic solution to this problem. We've got families to feed. They did not do that. Apparently there's not even any suggestion that they ever considered that. They too see Peter and John as their own. There's no self-protection on display here. They listen and live as one body with Peter and John included. Their response is, we're in this together. We belong to Jesus. We're going to follow him together. I I wondered as I was thinking this through, 
um, do we listen to the burdens and pressures of our Christian brothers and sisters? Do, do we offer ourselves as a really welcome ear to be able to hear from one another about these stresses, these pressures? And look, it's like we've been pickled in it. It is so widespread. It is so prevalent. If you spent one day, much less years in public school like I did, you were taught that you are an idiot fool if you speak of Jesus in public. If you dare speak up about Christ and His glory and the maker of all things and the purpose of existence in Jesus, you're a fool. What's wrong with you? We've been pickled in this. This is how we've been taught to think. It's the air that we breathe in today's world. So maybe we need to wake up to some of these pressures. Maybe some of us don't even realize how these pressures are affecting us. But do we listen to one another? Do we share with one, or, with one another about these types of pressures? And how can we make this a corporate activity? Maybe this could be a, a, point, a bullet point in our prayer times together. When we pray together, when we come together for our, our prayer meetings. I don't know. But it's an important point for us to consider. Next, they were together with one accord. They were together with one accord. The text says they raised their voice to God with one accord and said. So the church at that moment, let's just kind of pause right there at that moment. As the prayer is starting, they are with one accord. They have one mind. They have one heart. They understand who Jesus is. They're devoted to him. They know that he was crucified that he was raised from the dead. They walked with him during those 40 days before he was ascended and they watched him. They watched God the Father take him up into heaven and they understood that he was enthroned as the king over all things as we're about to see in the prayer that they pray. They know his commandments to them and they're not difficult. They're not hard to understand and they are in a perfect agreement over who he is, what he's accomplished and what they are doing to do to obey obey him they know he's going to take care of them they know the sanhedrin's powers and threats they're right before their eyes they know they've been commanded to disobey jesus or face terrible consequences they're not trying to reshape the situation and and come to an easier moment to deal with no they know what's going on and they are of one accord it sounds as if there's not even one mind not even one heart that's like hey guys uh, can we talk about this for a minute? Maybe we should kind of tone it down for a little while. Maybe if there's a healing that takes place, we should just like pat him on the back and, and go our way. No, not one voice, not one heart, not one mind at this moment. That is quite a miracle. They were all of one accord. They know their, their Savior. They've been with Him. They know His compassion. They know His power. They know His love for His people. And they know He will take care of them as they do His will. They're not living by sight. They will take away your paycheck. And they say, have you seen Jesus' bank account? They say, we'll beat you with a rod. They'll say, have you seen Jesus' rod? You see, this is how these people think. They look to Jesus. And they know that He is their good shepherd. They know that he will support and defend his people as they obey him against all threats of every kind. Commentary says, they raise their voices unanimously and thus as one voice. In view of Peter's speech before the Sanhedrin and Luke summarized in verses 8 through 12, Peter could be one, the one who formulated the prayer that we're going to look at as time goes on in the following verses. But the other believers expressing their assent with a responsory amen. So we don't have to believe that they were all speaking the same exact words at the same time together. But they were with one voice and mind and heart agreeing together before God's throne. So I really want us to see this pre-prayer momentum, sharing the threats, shared understanding, and shared faith and hope. So prayer time that is fruitful like this is going to be part of of momentum that God is already working in that people. You don't just show up to prayer time and expect to see fruitfulness like this if these other things aren't in place as the momentum that bring us together to pray. World-conquering prayer 
is a necessary consequence of being together with one accord, obeying Christ in the face of all threats. We should expect that. Commentary says they lifted up their voice to God with one accord, not that it can be supposed that they all said the same words at the same time, though it was possible that they might, but one in the name of the rest lifted up his voice to God and the rest joined with him. They had one mind as they were praying. Their hearts went along with him and so... Though but one spoke, they all prayed. One lifted up his voice, and in concurrence with him, they all lifted up their hearts, which was in effect lifting up their voice to God. For thoughts are as words to God. So when we pray together today, when we have our corporate prayer time, even though you're not going to be praying aloud necessarily, you can be of one mind, of one accord with the person who is praying. And that's actually why we say amen. It's a way of saying aloud, I'm with you, brother. I, I, amen. I, I agree with what you just prayed. And I was with you praying it before God's throne as you prayed it. So we want to be together and of one accord. And growing in our devotion to Christ and our sanctification. Because, you know, this culture has taught us to live other ways to have other priorities, to have idols that distract us from this. And these idols keep us from being of one accord, of one mind. So to the extent that my family is not devoted to Christ, whatever portion that is, I can't be of one mind, of one accord with you uh, if you are devoted to Christ in that area. You see, there'll be the clashes there. So we need to always be growing and asking God, how can I be sanctified? How can I be sanctified? So I don't have a lot of questions for us here today. I've asked them as we went through the sermon today. I do hope that you will take some time to ponder these ideas of what it means for us to be together and to share with one another the things that we're experiencing and to be of one accord together to be filled with hope, uh, and it leads into prayer. I, I kind of hate to break the sermons up like this because it goes right into prayer. You know, they don't pause for a week before they pray. Uh, we'll get to that, the details of the prayer next week. But I really thought it was important to see everything behind that that led to that wonderful prayer and God's answer to that prayer. And we'll look at that together next week. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank You, Lord, for how You've saved us from our sins through the death of Christ upon the cross, how we rejoice in His resurrection from the dead, and how in union with Him You have brought us into resurrection, filling us with Your Spirit and granting to us power to love You, faith to walk in Your ways, and the courage to not be made into cowards when we are threatened by the flesh and the world and the devil. Oh, how we praise you and thank you that you bring us together. You grant to us one another the mutuality that we belong to one another. We can listen to each other. We can hear one another's burdens and pray together with one accord. Oh, we praise you and thank you for this koinonia, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.